0: Well, today we come to question 24 in our study of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We've been looking at how God the Father so very graciously sent His Son to redeem us out of our estate of sin and misery and to bring us into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. Last week, we saw that God the Father gave God the Son three offices in order that he might be our redeemer, let's confess the question that speaks about this. In confess it in unison together. Question twenty-three: What offices doth Christ execute? Is our redeemer? Christ is our redeemer. Executeth the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. I pointed out to you that Christ was commissioned by the Father to fulfill these offices and also furnished with the Holy Spirit to enable him to do the work that he was given to do. We also saw that each of these offices was established by God in the Old Testament, that only, uh, and, but that only Christ was able to truly carry out these offices in a way that would be eternally saving to us. We saw how each of these offices involves work that he had to do on earth in his humiliation and also work that he does from glory in his exaltation. So he was our prophet, priest, and king when he walked here among us. He also is our prophet, priest, and king, now that he is in glory. I told you that we would look at each of Christ's offices in more detail in the the weeks that are coming. And so this week, we're going to look at the first of the three, the office of prophet, which is the next catechism question. God's call for us concerning Christ as prophet is this. This is my beloved Son. Hear him. That's the Father's instruction to us when we consider Christ our prophet. Let's see what the Catechism says here with question 24. How doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Say it together. Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. John introduces Christ as a prophet in the opening of his gospel. Please turn to John chapter 1 for our scripture reading. You can see that John actually presents Christ here as the one who is the word of God, incarnate, enfleshed, in human flesh, who came from heaven to reveal truth to us. So give attention as I read to you from God's holy word. This is John chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, and it is the Holy Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. To them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness to him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy an infallible word. So you see here that the one who is called the Word is himself God, and that he is called the Word because he declared God to us. Verse 18 sums it all up for us when it says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The word declared could be translated exegeted. He explains God to us. He makes God known to us. He being God and being the light comes in human flesh and then his office is in making God known to us. He communicates God by coming to us in human flesh as God. We who cannot see God in his essence because it's beyond our ability or capacity can see the word made flesh. The son of God made flesh. The invisible God became that which we could see and hear and handle and look upon. So this is a very important thing for us to realize that even just in his becoming flesh, Jesus was doing something of the, um, the prophetic office and bringing light to us. It, it's also important to realize that when you have visions of God and things like that in the Old Testament, like Mount Sinai or Isaiah seeing the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, those are all visions of Christ because we can't see God at all. I mean, he's, he's, there's not something for us to see that we are capable of seeing. Whenever you see those kinds of presentations of God, He's reducing Himself. He's condescending into forms that that we can look at and see. And it shows us things about God. But God doesn't look like what He looked like on the throne when Isaiah saw Him or on Mount Sinai with the thunder and lightning, those kind of things. No one has seen God at any time, and we can't. But the Son coming in these ways that we can see and coming now in flesh makes makes, uh, God known to us. So coming to the first thing I want you to consider, Jesus is himself God's word. His life, his human life is God's revelation. He reveals God's will to us in his person and in his actions Now, what do I mean when I say that he reveals God's will? What is God's will? God's will, very simply, is what God wants of us when we use it this way. Uh, We can speak of God's will in terms of his plan. But when we speak of his will revealed to us, it's particularly what God wants of us. And sometimes what he's going to do concerning us can be included in that. God is our creator, and we don't know what he wants Unless he tells us as creator, he is the one who brings us into the world. He's the one who fashions us with with arms and legs and hair and eyes and all the rest of the things that we have. He makes men and women and he fills the earth with things. He gives us intelligence so that we can think and so that we can reason and we can be enlightened. But we have no idea what he wants to do with us until he tells us what he wants to do with us. What is his will? What does he want us to do? And what are his plans for us? What is his will? In previous sermons, we have seen that God revealed his will to us right from the start, that he made us in his image so that we were moral beings who knew that it was God's will, for example, for us to love one another. It's not something anybody has to figure out that we were to love God, and that we were to worship God. Those are things that are givens. He revealed that to us in our very makeup. And he gave us some directives. He revealed to us the Sabbath day, one day in seven, to be set aside for, for his own worship. If you remember our creator, he revealed that it was his will for us to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with people. And he gave us marriage as uh, a place where that was to be done, the place where that was to be done. He revealed to us that it was his will for us to labor, to subdue the earth for each other, to build things, discover things, organize things, grow food. He revealed marriage to us that a man is to take a woman and permanently join himself to her so that the two become one flesh. And we saw that God made a covenant with us to tell us his will, to reveal his will to us. And you see, it's Christ, the Son, who does all of this as a prophet. It's his will for us to obey him as a gracious master. He showed us that. He gave us a test of our allegiance right from the beginning when that covenant, a test telling us not to eat from one of the many trees that he had given us for food. He told us that if we ate from this one forbidden tree that we would die, that we would not be able to continue in the happy condition in which he had created us. And in showing us this, it was also implied that if we did not continue in his service, I mean, if we, that if we did continue in his service, that we would live forever. He showed us that it was his will for us to live forever in our original happiness, if we but continued. To, to assure us that it was his will, he gave us the tree of life in the midst of the garden. And uh, this tree was a tree promising eternal life to us. If we, as long as we did not reject God as our God by eating the forbidden fruit. You know, of course, that we did go and eat from the tree and we terminated our life as it was in paradise. What was God going to do with us now? What was his will? Well, he told us that as well of suffering and death told us that we would return to the dust from which we had been made. But he also revealed that it was his will to restore some of us, that he would turn some of us back to himself by granting us repentance, by granting us a savior who would be born to us and who would restore all things. He showed us that it was his will to bring us back to himself. He made a covenant about that too, and he kept renewing and expanding that covenant through the ages, through the generations. And of course, this Savior that I'm talking about is Jesus Christ, whom John calls the Word, Logos, in the original Greek. He was given this name, Word, because he himself reveals God's will, particularly to save his people. His person, his actions, his life, reveal the will of God to save He is the ultimate prophet who reveals God's salvation to us. Let's look at this in more detail. First, at how he reveals what God saves us to be God's law, that's part of God's will. And then, at how he reveals what God does to save us, the actions that he takes to restore us. So, what he saves us to be, and then how he goes about that salvation. So first, see what Jesus, our prophet, reveals as far as God's law to us. Not just talking about commandments here that that tell us how to live, but by actually himself living in obedience to the Father as a model to us. That's part of his prophetic office. When we're learning the law, we're learning about Christ who lives to God. So he is God's moral law, not in letters of, carved in stone but in living flesh that's why when uh we were given the commandment to to love one another yes that meant something to us but then when jesus came it was a new commandment because now we had him living it out what beauty we see in him this is the one who was all that man ought to be nothing lacking such wisdom all he did was what ought to be done. All that he said was what ought to be said. Isn't that amazing? I mean we 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 rarely say what we ought to say. All that he said is what ought to be said. Such love, here is the one who laid down his life for us, even bearing the eternal wrath and curse of God for our sake. Such service, here is the one who went about everywhere doing good. This is how he lived. He lived doing good. Our dear Lord Jesus was completely without sin. He was pure kindness, justice, beauty, holiness, and human flesh. He totally fulfilled God's law the way that he lived. And we need to, we need to behold him. We need to admire him, the word that is, that, who does the will of God, a model for us. John thirteen thirty four and 35, he said, A commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one because we'll look like him. If you have love for one another, you look like him. In Ephesians four, thirty-two through five one, Paul says, And be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another. So that's another part of it. People do wrong to us and we say, Well, then I don't have to love them. No. You forgive them, you're tender hearted toward them. Just as God in Christ forgave you, therefore, be imitators of God as as dear children. So we see what God is like in the flesh in the way Jesus forgave. You can see how Paul here makes imitating Christ equal to imitating God. God's moral law is displayed in a human level, the human species, if I could say that, the human race, By Jesus Christ. It's what it looks like. You could conceive of what what would a a human look like bringing their morality to an animal of some kind, a a beast of some kind. Probably would be worse than the animal is. But uh, when you think about that with, with God bringing his life into our life and then we see what God is like as one of us how beautifully we see the will of God. Jesus also displays the observance of God's ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was all about showing us how to approach God as sinners that we now are. Sacrifices had to be offered and priests had to be ordained to do this work. There were all sorts of washings and regulations that were imposed. And of course, Jesus, and that was for the cultic worship, that was all appointed by God, the ceremonial worship, to portray what has to be done for, according to God's will for our salvation. But we know fully the will of God by Jesus Christ. Jesus came and fulfilled all of those ceremonies in reality so that now we draw near by faith in what he did, faith in him, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. Jesus is our worship leader, and he leads us right into the Holy of Holies where we have communion with God. He is our priest. In him we learn what the will of God is for sinners, whereby they may come to God. He approaches the Father with perfect prayer, with perfect praise, with holy reverence, with purity, with thanksgiving, in the beauty of holiness. All of it is seen in Christ he leads, us the way, he leads the way in the offering of what is required for us, declares to us how God accepted us through his sacrifice, and leads us in giving thanks and singing praise for that acceptance of his sacrifice. As he quoted in Hebrews 2.12, he says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you, And that's quoted from Psalm 22, where after his uh, cries are heard when he was offering himself for our sins on the cross, then he gathers his brothers together to give thanks to God. He leads us in prayer and praise, all with holy reverence and purity. Jesus is also the embodiment of God's judicial law. That's what God's will is for the punishment of sinners. In the Old Testament, the judicial law set forth penalties for sin. The punishments that this sin deserved or that sin deserved, various punishments were pronounced on various crimes and for various sins. And death was brought upon those who rejected Moses' law, as Hebrews 10.28 reminds us. Many of them were punished by death in the wilderness, God was not pleased with them, and they fell. Their carcasses were, were in the wilderness. When Jesus walked on earth, he frequently spoke of even greater punishment than that. He spoke of the eternal punishment that was to come. He declared that anyone who did not come to him would suffer eternal punishment in hell on account of his or, or her sin. Because we saw the will of God for uh, the, that was fulfilled. Those ceremonies that showed how one would approach God, that Jesus actually fulfilled that when he came here in his flesh. So as a prophet, he declared God's penalty and God's judicial law, but he also showed us the way of reconciliation. He showed, though, that hell was the punishment for sin as a prophet. In a a very striking way, he revealed God's judgment by actually himself bearing God's judgment in his own body on the tree for him to be cut off as he was, shows how severe God's judgment really is. It reveals God's will and his punishment for sin. And of course, when Jesus returns, he will further reveal God's will regarding punishment of sin. He will reveal it by actually being the one who punishes those who are in rebellion against God and who are not redeemed. Once again, our prophet will show us He will reveal to us the will of God. So he's still got more that he's going to do in that regard. So you see how Jesus Christ is the law of God enfleshed. The moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law brought to living expression. To see him is to see God's law in all of its glory and beauty. It is to see God's law perfectly fulfilled and perfectly lived out by him as man. That's how he reveals the law of God, is our prophet. But Jesus is also God's word, God's prophetic revelation of grace. Now, we already spoke about that a little bit with the ceremony. But the grace of God is brought to its fullest expression and full revelation in his living flesh. To see him is to see God's grace and mercy enfleshed, fully revealed. It is to see the will of God to save us. We see that in Christ. We see grace. Jesus is also God's word of grace, then. We see in him coming down from heaven to save that this is God's that we, we see the mercy of God made visible to us as it says in John 1:17. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. The law of Moses told us what was required, even what was required in the way of punishment. But then Jesus came to bring grace that saves us. Moses showed us the requirements. Jesus fulfilled the requirements for us. That he so loved us, God so loved us that he gave his only son. So Jesus is the word, the revelation of God's will to save. And not only was grace seen by his coming for us to save us, but even more by him actually going to the cross itself. When we see him suffering on the cross to take away our sins, we see clearly how committed God is to saving his people. There is no language to describe the grace of God that he would send his only son to bear the curse for us in this way. When we see the son doing this, the will of God to save is put beyond all doubt. Christ crucified causes you to realize that he is surely committed to our saving to to our salvation Jesus the word makes it clear that he wishes to save God's will to save is further confirmed when Jesus is resurrected from the grave here we see that God was pleased to accept his offering in our behalf as our savior who came to bear our sins in Jesus resurrection we see all of those he died for raised up I mean that we see that God will raise them up because He raised Jesus up. Jesus was there representing Him. If the representative is raised up, He's the first fruits of the resurrection. All the others will follow. It is His will to accept His sacrifice so that we who trust in Him might be raised from the dead with Him. And God's grace will yet be seen when Jesus returns. He will return to restore all things in the earth. And then God's will for our salvation will be experienced. It will be fully revealed by him who restores. We will dwell with him in peace and happiness that is actually experienced from Christ our prophet. So do you see then how Christ reveals God's will to us in his office as prophet? He himself reveals to us both how God wants us to live and how God brings us life. He is the embodiment. Of God's will. He does not just speak the message, he actually is the message. But of course, there's a problem here to solve. It's fine for Jesus to be the message, but the fact is that he was only here for about 30 years. So, how does he, as our prophet, get the message to us so that we can receive it now that he's no longer here? None of us have seen him with our eyes. And besides that, we're all stubborn, and we spurn God's word. We're spiritually blind, deaf, and stubborn. He came to his own, like it says in John, and his own received him not. So how does he get the message across to us? That's the next thing I want to show you today. As our prophet, Jesus gets his message to us, as it says in the catechism, by his word and spirit. We'll look at the word first and at the Spirit. By word, I mean this time the verbal word, both written and spoken. I've just showed you that Jesus Himself is the living word in flesh. But he gets this message to us primarily by verbal words. Before he came, he sent prophets to tell us of himself, of what he would do and of what and of what of what he would be and of what he would do to save us the person and work of christ when jesus met with his disciples after his resurrection he showed them how the scriptures spoke of him of the scriptures of the old testament in luke 24:44 it says then he said to them these are the words which i spoke to you while i was still with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of moses and the prophets and the psalms concerning me And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting that his disciples who had been with him, who'd seen all that he did, who saw him go and die on the cross, then are pointed to the Scriptures? So that they can know Christ. In other words, this living word points to the written word to inform them more fully about who he is. To enlighten them as as a prophet. He points back to the scriptures. But it is is important to realize that, that these prophets were him in a sense. They were his prophets, I guess I should say. That were sent by him. They spoke by Christ, by the Spirit of Christ that was in them. Peter tells us that very thing in 1 Peter 1, 10-12, that these prophets prophesied by the of the grace that would come to us in Christ, testifying beforehand of the glory of Christ and the sufferings that would follow. And then it says that they spoke by the Spirit of Christ when they did this. In other words, Christ was speaking through them, to reveal himself. And of course after Jesus came, he had people like Peter and the other apostles who declared him to us with more words, words written and words spoken. Peter refers to this as well in his epistle. In 1 Peter 1:10 1, through 12, when in verse 12 he speaks of the things which now have been reported to you, through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Notice how Peter says, the things, uh, the things about Jesus and his sufferings were reported by those who preached the gospel to you. That refers to those like Peter and the other apostles who gave us the New Testament. The Old Testament prophets prophesied of Jesus In the New Testament, apostles and prophets reported to us about Jesus, what they saw and what he did. So you had prophecies about him in the old and then declarations of him by eyewitnesses of what he had done. And this information about Christ was written down for us in the scripture so that we might have it in all generations. The apostles, by the way, knew that they were writing scriptures when they wrote that that we might have access to Christ, the one who embodies God's message, because we couldn't have access to him without these words. Peter himself, at the end of his second epistle, refers to Paul's writings as scripture. He knew that he and Paul were writing scripture. John the Apostle opens his first epistle by declaring that, that he writes, as the other apostles did, he said, we write, or we do this, he writes of Christ, whom we saw and heard and touched in order that we might in order that you might have fellowship with us that we might have fellowship in the salvation that Jesus brought he's making Christ known by writing scripture but it's by the spirit of Christ in him that the scripture is written and now that those who walked with Christ when he came to earth are no longer in this world We can't go and listen to them. We have access to Jesus, the word incarnate, through these writings that they left us. Jesus himself commanded that this word would be preached to all nations. He wanted it to go everywhere. That that is the chief method that he has appointed for bringing the message to his people. He calls us together and he declares God's will through preaching. I wonder what your attitude is towards God's word and toward reading of God's word. In Hebrews 2, you're urged to listen and to pay careful attention to what is preached about Jesus. Because this is the message of salvation. It says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. It is necessary for you to hear God's word in this way, because this is the way that he has chosen to reveal Christ for our salvation. If you do not receive the word, You will not escape eternal death. As we saw last week, those who will not hear Jesus must perish from among the covenant people of God. He's the prophet that everyone must hear. He speaks to us through his written word, which is read and preached. So you see that Jesus, now that he has gone to glory, reveals himself to us through verbal revelation written and preached. That's how he and his present office of prophet declares God's will to us now that he's in heaven. That's how he declares himself in his message of salvation to us, that we might know him and we might know how to be saved. But more is needed to get the message to us. Why? The communication is all there. It's because we are stubborn to get through to us he must convey this message by the means of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus did nothing more than to give us the Scriptures, even Scripture that is powerfully and faithfully preached, even, say, by preachers that are themselves filled with the Holy Spirit, it would not benefit us. Not at all. Even those who heard Jesus in person or those who heard his apostles did not benefit from the words that were preached unless... The Holy Spirit enabled them to receive the message. You're just like uh, some, something dead um, that, that you can't receive the message. First Corinthians 2.14 tells us that in our fallen nature, we're indisposed to the receiving of God's word. It says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So the word can be there. Jesus himself can be there, but it is no use if we are left to ourselves. We will revisit it when we, uh, and, and we will not understand, we, we, will, we will resist it. We will resist the word and we will not understand it, not because we're stupid, but because we're corrupt and we don't really want to receive the word. But this is where Christ's prophetic ministry becomes uniquely powerful. where he does something that only divine power can do. In his office as prophet, he not only brings the word to us, but he so works in us that we receive the word. He actually transforms our character so that we believe the truth. We looked at this in John 5, 25 through 26, where Jesus tells us that those who are spiritually dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and that those who hear will live. His word brings life when it is spoken. This is the work of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sends along with his word to cause us to truly receive the message, to receive Christ himself. John sixteen seven through 8 explains that it is not because of our cleverness, but it's because of God's power that the word can give life. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. In saying that the spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness and judgment, Jesus is essentially saying that the spirit will make sin, righteousness and judgment real to people. Is sin, righteousness, and judgment real to you? Or are these just concepts? Are they things that really, that, that, that grip you? We, we'll see that we're sinners when this happens. What, what Christ is, that, that we'll see that what we are, that we're sinners. We'll see what Christ is, that he's the righteousness of God given for salvation. We'll see how God's judgment crushed Christ because of our sins and will crush us unless we trust in Him. They who are dead will be awakened by the Word of Christ to these realities and to His salvation. Christ the Word will bring life to the dead by the powerful working of His Spirit in connection with the Word, so that the Word goes forth and it makes people alive. They come, they come up from the dead, as it were. The apostles would have preached in vain if there were no Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away there in John 16. The world must have the spirit working with the word or they cannot be saved. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we saw how Paul explains how the natural man doesn't recognize the word. The natural man is what we are apart from the influence of the spirit. The only reason that believers differ from the natural man is, is because the Spirit has done a work of grace in them, changed them. 2 Corinthians 1, 10 through 11, it says, But God has revealed them to us. See, in contrast to these others, that the, the natural man that doesn't receive the word of God, God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. It's always such a blessing to see someone who connects with the Word of God for the first time. They were, they were just, it was all fuzzy and foggy, and they didn't get anything out of it. And then all of a sudden, it's alive. They're alive, and they're able to receive. And the other person is there who's not alive, and like, there's nothing there for them. It's, it's, a, it's a tremendous change that God brings. We have examples of this divine work of, um, of, of the Spirit in Scripture. In Acts, we're told that a woman named Lydia received the word. What happened to her? Acts sixteen fourteen. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. So she heard the word. Okay, and people can hear it. Nothing. But what about her? It says she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Another example would be the Samaritan woman whom Jesus spoke to at the well. When she encountered the word, it was as if her whole life was laid bare. It was, she was exposed and laid wide open. She concluded at once that Jesus was the Messiah because of the way his word broke into her and gave her life. And now what about you? Are you an example of one who has heard the voice of Christ? Or are you dead to the voice of Christ? Does it, does it not register? Has his word come to you as spiritual power and gotten into you? What a great blessing it is to have Christ as our prophet. Truly, he reveals the will of God for our salvation. Now I want to move to our third point. How should you respond to Christ as your prophet? Well, all this being true that, and this is how we receive the truth of God, then uh, it ought to make you eager to hear him. He's he's the prophet, not an audible voice or even a mystical voice, but have his word come to you is the very word of God that convinces you, that speaks to you. In Second Thessalonians 3.1, Paul requests prayer that the word of God may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. The Thessalonians had received the word of God, not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God that. Had effectively worked in them it had transformed them so paul is praying now and he's saying pray that the word will have the same effect in the places where i'm going and carrying the word now that's what we should be constantly praying that those who hear this word would, would would be made alive by it when you're eager to hear christ you will prepare yourself to receive the word each lord's day You'll pray and ask God to, to speak to you and to prepare your heart to welcome the word. God's spirit, will work, pray that God's spirit will work through the preaching so that you will hear Christ and be changed. He has the office of prophet. Secondly, having Christ as your prophet ought to make you give thanks. If Christ has spoken to you and others so that you and they have believed, it's something to give thanks for. This completely changed your life and their life how many times does paul in writing to the churches begin his epistle that i gave thanks for how you responded to the word of god how it made you alive and how you turned from your idols to to serve the true and living god many do not have the privilege of receiving the word and some people hear the word and don't receive it i mean paul's writing to the ones that had received it what did others do at Thessalonica? Many of them rejected Paul and tried to drive him out of town. But those that received the word, you see, were the ones that had that blessing. And Paul constantly gives thanks for them. And you should give thanks for what you have heard from Christ, your prophet as well, for the content of the message that you've heard. Give thanks for the law of God, for the beautiful life that that Jesus lived and that that is it uh, is revealed to us even through the commandments of God and such things. Give thanks for God's commandments and ordinances, the ordinances He's given us of worship. Give thanks for the gospel, for the fact that in Christ you see that it was God's gracious will to save people. And you see what He did to save people, that Jesus has come and that He has died and that all who receive Him are given eternal life. is something to praise God for. The third thing that having Christ as your prophet ought to cause you to do is make you eager to bring the word to others. When we sing Psalm 78, we promise that we will not hide God's truth from the generation to come, from our children. Ephesians 6 commands fathers to make the word known to their children, to bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. We hide the word from them, we hide Christ from them, when we don't expose them to it, when we do not read it to them and bring them to church. It's like we're sticking our children off in isolation from what can give them life. Why would we withhold the word from our children? Why would, why would fathers not open up the word every day and, and, and speak out of the word to their children? And in Ephesians 5, husbands are told to, to be like Christ to their wives, washing them with the word, bringing the word to them, bringing Christ to them. What husband husband is an idiot if he doesn't do this. Why would you have your home and and your wife there and not want Christ to be ministered among you as the one who brings light and salvation to us? And Colossians 3.16 tells us to bring the word to each other. Those who are in the church, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. We should be encouraging one another with the, with the light that we have from Christ. Fourthly, having Christ as your prophet should make you confident. It's not just the word of men that we have. It's the word of God. You can be certain of it. You can rely on it. It gives you hope. Hope of His love and mercy. In Romans 15.4, Paul says that the things that were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Because again, the Scriptures are the Word of Christ. They set forth Christ who is embodied to us in a way that we can understand. When you know that these things come from Christ, the Son of God, it makes you certain of the promises of God to save you. We live in in very uncertain times right now, but we have the Word as an anchor As we saw this morning, Christ will have dominion. Hold on to the word, even though many will mock and ridicule you when you do. David brings this out powerfully in Psalm 119, when he says things like, 119 119.51, The proud have me in great derision, yet I do not turn aside from your law. Psalm 119.110, the wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not strayed from your precepts. 119.157 many, persecu- many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet I do not turn from your testimonies. Even though there are thousands of worldly, wise, important people laughing at you for your faith, it doesn't matter. You have the word. Even though they think that it's irrelevant it has no weight or no bearing upon us. It is the sure word that will actually stand forever. Think about how quickly even the things that the world does uh, come and go. I mean, people are punished now for things that people used to think were not an issue. And things that they used to be, think was an issue, now they, they're not punished for at all. Those who speak what is contrary to the word are the ones who will be ashamed in the end. They, will, they blow away like, like the chaff. But those who are established in the word of God will abide forever. The word is like an anvil. And the skeptics' criticisms are like hammers that, that beat on that anvil. You have a great anvil, and next to it you have a bunch of broken hammers. The anvil stays the same. Over the years, the broken, ha- the broken hammers multiply, but the anvil remains on, undamaged. What a marvelous thing it is to have God's word from heaven. Even Jesus Christ, the very living word of God, who reveals it to us in a way that we can receive it as the will of God for our salvation. He reveals to us the way of salvation. Please stand and let's give thanks and ask him to bless us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you now Indeed, thanking you for the word made flesh who dwelt among us. We thank you that he came from heaven and that he came with power and wisdom, that he came with light and life. Truly, he is the one that lightens everyone that comes into the world. He's a source of light even for those who do not know him, whatever light they have, even their understanding a, a, a tree is a tree and a rock is a rock that even those basic things are from from our Lord Jesus Christ. But, Father, we thank you that to those that received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And we thank you, O Lord, that we see the word made flesh. We see that uh, his glory that dwelt among us, and we see how grace and truth came by him. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would welcome the word of Christ, that we would receive it with joy, that we would cherish it. Father, we thank you. We thank you for those Christians that are all over the world who have received your word and who are receiving your word. We pray that you would multiply them. We pray that you would multiply us. Father, we also thank you, Lord, for the message itself, the rich gospel, the living law, the the law of Christ that shows us the way that we are to conduct our affairs. We thank you that Christ has made all of this known to us. We pray, Father, that we would take a greater interest in these things, that by your Spirit we would come alive, that we would not be dead, but alive by your gracious working. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive then the blessing of the Lord. Now may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? Amen.